Welcome to this Market Commentator podcast. It is MoneyWeb's weekly podcast where I speak to leading investment professionals. Our guest today is Ian Power. He is a portfolio manager at Truffle Asset Management. Ian, welcome to the show. Um, I want to start off with a warning by the IMF um, that uh, if the U.S. Uh, hikes interest rates in the current economic environment, the biggest loser could be emerging markets uh, and South Africa specifically. Are you concerned about U.S. rates? Hi, yes. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, I think one's got to take a step back um, and just really look at where we've come from over the last couple of years where there's been a massive amount of excess liquidity that's been pushed into markets. Um, and certainly global growth has been fairly, fairly robust. And, you know, to the extent that a lot of uh, money has been going into risk assets, that's been a big um, I guess uh, um, uh, positive for a lot of the emerging markets, not just currencies, but as well as markets in terms of asset prices. But what we're starting to see is we're starting to see some strain um, in emerging markets uh, as a result of a whole host of reasons. But um, certainly as emerging market prospects start to decline, uh, there is a propensity for capital to start to move back to developed markets and certainly gets accelerated when you see rates moving up in those markets, really on the back of improved prospects in those particular markets. So the U.S., you know, obviously a case in point, uh, we're looking for a rate hike in that market and that would probably continue to, to push capital out of emerging markets into developed markets. But how much do you think our market is or was inflated by this uh, excess uh, liquidity in the market? Yeah, I mean, that's a very, very difficult, I guess, uh, question to answer. But there's no doubt if one looks at the foreign participation across our market in terms of foreign shareholding uh, across the various companies, um, we are at pretty high levels. Um, if you look at the, the extent of uh, foreign ownership of a lot of our sovereign debt, uh, and not just from a South African context, from a lot of other emerging markets. I mean, there has been a massive trade uh, where people have been funding at at uh, uh, all their trades in um, very, very low rates and then investing that capital into uh, emerging markets to get the yield pickup. So, you know, to sort of say how long is a piece of string, you know, we don't know, but there's no doubt that the cost of capital in a lot of these emerging markets we think is artificially depressed. In other words, we think interest rates are too low and we think that there is still a lot of of, uh, hot money that is sloshing around in markets and as and when those offshore developed market investors start to see the prospects changing for the worse, which we think they are, uh, that's when you start to see the, the uh, capital flows reversing. And, you know, to, to then obviously compound that at the same time, if you start to see rates going up in some of the developed markets, specifically the U.S., you know, that just puts further pressure on those capital outflows. Mm. Are you actively trying to, uh, you know, change your strategy to protect capital uh, in this market? Yeah, so I think, you know, perhaps just to mention that we, from a philosophical point of view, we we are not um, top-down analysts. We, you know, we we obviously aware of what's happening from a macroeconomic perspective, but we don't build the portfolio around a particular economic view um, or, or interest rate view. What we do is we try and focus on identifying value businesses which are mispriced uh, relative to what we think they're worth. And we then try and invest in those opportunities irrespective of uh, the cycle. Obviously, we try and get a good um, margin of safety. In other words, we try 
in terms of building into um, our initial price. We try and make sure that we, we get quite a big margin of safety. Um, but effectively, the portfolio is a function of the value opportunities that we see in the market. So to answer your question, um, the portfolios at the moment, certainly the multi-asset class funds, we are at pretty much our historic low in terms of exposure to risk assets, being principally uh, equities, um, perhaps um, some of the higher risk fixed income instruments. And that's really a function of the value that's available in our market. So we have been consistently reducing equity exposure over the last 18, 24 months as we've seen less and less value in our own market. And, you know, at the end of the day, the portfolio then just reflecting that, um, I guess, to the extent that we have less and less exposure to equities in the fund. So, you know, from, from a capital point of view, I think one of the big differences from a truffle uh, point of view is that we really focus a lot on risk, not just portfolio risk, but company-specific risk. And perhaps we can we can uh, touch mm. on that a little bit later. But um, to the extent that the, the, the value that's available in our own market is significantly less than 12, 24 months ago, you're seeing that in terms of what our exposures to those risk assets look like in the portfolio. So I would say that we're pretty defensively positioned. Um, we also have hedges in place across a lot of our portfolios um, because we are worried about valuations. We are worried about you know potential shocks like uh, Fed pushing up rates and what that could do to to risk assets. So you know I guess. Looking at what returns have been over the last four or five years, which have been pretty good, um, we are expecting a lot more volatility and, and perhaps um, you know more difficult times ahead mm. as opposed to what we've seen. In, in the balance fund, uh, you only have uh, 40% local equity exposure and 7.6% international equity exposure. Um, and I assume it did decline over the last 24 months, as you said, what did you put the money, what are the other asset classes you put the money into? Yeah, so what we've been doing is we've been reducing the domestic uh, equity exposure, as you said, to, to 40% um, physical. Then we've got hedges in place of about another 6%. So our effective exposure to domestic equity is sitting at about 34 On the foreign equity, where we've been seeing much better opportunities, um, up until about three, four months ago, we were actually starting to take a lot of profits in our offshore equity, which we did. So we reduced that from about 13, 14% all the way down to the 7% number that you've seen. And that's just really on the back of a lot of those assets that we invested in offshore had done really well. And we chose to exit those investments based on the fact that we didn't think that there was um, a lot of upside left in some of those uh, specific counters. Now, what's transpired over the last two, three months is you've seen quite a big pullback across um, some of the offshore names as well. If you look at you know some of the European companies, some of the US companies, um, in certain sectors, you've seen some big price dislocation. So the value uh, in, I guess, an offshore context uh, in our opinion sort of compared to three months ago today looks a little bit better and what you would see in our next fact sheet is we've actually you know taken advantage of this uh, sell-off that we've seen in some of the space and we've pushed that number back up to about 12 odd percent in the portfolio so what, what did you buy we've bought um, we've moved some capital back into some of the European names um, you've seen some big sell-offs in some of the European specifically some of the big top 50 shares such as 
Well, I mean, if you look at uh, some of the automakers, if you look at particularly some of the banking shares, um, Society uh, General, um, if you look at, you know, just Credit Suisse, a whole host of those those banking names. I mean, a lot of those businesses have come back, you know, 10, 15, and perhaps um, even more. I mean, if you look at some of the uh, automakers on the back of this this VW scandal. So I think what what we like as a small manager is we is we actually like volatility so volatility equals alpha opportunities for our customers you know high volatility gives us the opportunity to make money for our customers because when you have these events where good shares and bad shares get sold down indiscriminately that's when we um, have having dry powder like we've been building cash in the portfolios can take advantage of that and move it back into into the risk assets. So, do you have exposure to Volkswagen or are you no, looking at don't. Volkswagen? No, we don't. No, we don't have uh, exposure to to VW. But you know, as I said, we um, only recently, uh, within the last I guess uh, three weeks, have have started to up that exposure once again. But we would be looking at good solid businesses. Uh, good dividend yields, free cash flow yields, and certainly some of the PEs or the multiples that you can access these these businesses on are, are significantly lower than perhaps what one can find in a local South African context. I mean, if you look at some of the European financials, some of those banks, you can get them on dividend yields in euros of sort of between 3 and 5%, growing their earnings at between 8 and and 12%. And I think if one just thinks about how long European growth has stagnated for five, six years, and they're now starting to emerge out of this difficult period. Mm-hmm. Um, earnings bases of some of those companies are certainly not high, where we could argue from a South African context that many South African businesses' earnings are, uh, and, and returns that the businesses are generating are artificially high, and obviously also a function of your earlier question to the extent that you've got a lot of hot money flowing into emerging markets means that you know, we've been able to fund our, our current account and our capital account with these offshore flows, which keeps interest rates down, which, you know, stimulates consumer demand. And I guess that's probably one of our big uh, concerns from, from a local perspective. So offshore, certainly much, much better opportunities. And, you know, we do have our maximum offshore, 25% of the balance fund as well as the flexible fund. Um, but within that, as I say, we still have a certain uh, percentage of cash, uh, even offshore, just waiting for opportunities based on our expectation of very high volatility. Just coming back to South Africa and your flexible and balanced fund, um, your top 10 holdings are pretty similar. Old Mutual, Steinoff, British American Tobacco, Into, Investec, Sassel, Capital and Counties. Rand Merchant Bank Holdings, uh, India Bulls, um, and Redefine. Um, w- w- what is the strategy behind uh, behind holding you know such similar shares in, in those two funds? Mm. So I think from a, from the multi asset class funds, um, what we really focus on is we focus on trying to identify businesses which. Uh, will generate the required expected return. So, you know, let's say inflation beating returns across both of the portfolios. The flexible fund has a benchmark of CPR plus five and the balance fund of CPR plus four. So what we do is we look for businesses who can first of all exceed that that target uh, return. Uh, but then secondly, what we do is we look for businesses where we have a sense 
that the potential return from those businesses is skewed to the upside. In other words, it's not a, a symmetrical return distribution. Um, so if you can imagine going back to your university days of your normal bell curve, you know, we are looking for shares which um, are skewed to the upside from, from a return distribution point of view. And I think, you know, what that means is that means that, you know, in the event um, that there is some sort of uh, exogenous shock to the market or, or something happens, you are invested in businesses which, uh, because of the pricing of those cash flows versus their intrinsic value, at worst case, perhaps your return is zero. Uh, or perhaps slightly negative, as opposed to buying businesses where, you know, if you get your, your hypothesis wrong, you could lose 20, 30, 40, or even, you know, 80% of your money, like we've seen in some of the, um, the uh, situations in our, in our local market. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why the names are the same, because you're getting good dividend yields, you know, you take an old mutual, you know, 4.5% forward yield in sterling, growing their, their earnings and embedded value in double-digit terms, um, good value in the business and you know I guess from a portfolio construction point of view we want to expose customers money to decent quality businesses which are attractively priced where you are getting good cash flows uh, good potential in terms of dividends but also uh, making sure that you're not exposing yourself to to an unnecessary high price risk in the event that there's some sort of market sell-off. Well, two companies that are absent, um, SAB Miller and Nospas, uh, why do you not uh, like them? Yes, so we've had, uh, we do have some SAB in the balance fund, but it's not in our top 10. Um, I think, you know, if one looks at um, the likes of an SAB, it certainly hasn't been cheap when one looks at an absolute valuation context. But in the context of uh, a big quality, high quality offshore business, which is, also been uh, underpinned by the um, corporate action rumors which you know of late certainly seem to have a a lot more um, founding to those you know that that has taken that valuation to what what we would say as being um, not cheap so you know as a consequence of that we haven't had a big exposure to the likes of sab miller um, in the balanced and in the flexible fund but um, what we do have is we have the, the ability to buy other offshore businesses because now just bear in mind these are multi-asset class funds where you can take 25% of your assets offshore. So if you, if you just think about um, a local mandate um, where you are investing in only local equities, your, your opportunity set is very different to that of a balanced and flexible fund. So we don't have to buy SAB, we can go and buy InBev, we could buy Heineken or Carlsberg if we thought that those were better opportunities. And indeed, that's what we've done um, in those in those two portfolios. So NUSPAS would be a, ca a case in point where, you know, NUSPAS, I think, has a very important role to play in a domestic, local-only mandate um, because it gives you exposure to a type of business which one cannot access other than NUSPAS in the local market. But from the balanced and flexible um, fund perspective, we chose to invest in a business called NetEase, which we thought was significantly better valued than the likes of Nuspass and, and Tencent Offshore. Um, and you know that investment, we bought it at about $40. It's currently sitting at about $120, um, has, has also done very well for us. And we bought it at a valuation level, which was significantly more attractive than the likes of a Nuspass. So I think, 
you know, when you look at a local equity only mandate to some of these um, multi-asset funds where you have the ability to, to leverage um, exposure into offshore markets, clearly your opportunity set is much bigger and the ability to pick um, many, many more stocks. I mean, the offshore markets, there's 14, 15,000 shares available. And domestically, you know, you only have a, a, a significantly smaller amount of opportunities to leverage your expertise into the funds. So, I mean, that would be the reason why we don't have, you know, big exposures to those particular two names. Uh, there are also uh, no uh, commodity stocks uh, in the top 10. Uh, what, what is your view on the value commodity stocks currently offer? That's right. So, I think from a truffle um, perspective, we've been quite cautious and circumspect about perhaps some of the superficial value that um, many of our competitors have uh, identified in those particular names. And we've been very cautious to to expose customer capital to those names um, in an environment where we are still very concerned about some of the fundamentals that are facing those particular businesses. So remember when I said to you earlier that we focus very much on the risk um, at a stock-specific level. So we run a scenario where we say, what if we're wrong? So we have our best view in terms of what the intrinsic value is, but but then we ask ourselves a question. We say, well, let's say we're wrong. What is the potential capital destruction or what is the return profile look of those particular shares? Now, now a, a few points that I perhaps raise which which have been worrying us. Um, the first one is that a lot of these businesses have had significant leverage um, in in uh, the underlying companies, particularly if one looks at some of the platinum assets, you know, some of the like Lonman, Impala, for example, um, uh, Glencore would be another example. And, uh, you know, Anglo's perhaps, perhaps less so. So when you have a scenario where um, free cash flows of the business come under significant pressure uh, because of variables which you as management have no control of and which you as an investor have very little ability to forecast accurately what those variables, the RAND and let's say commodity prices will look like one year, two year from now, you need to be very careful when investing in businesses which have high operating leverage combined with financial leverage. So that that together with, I guess, one of the big uh, worries that's been on our minds is that notwithstanding the fact that commodity prices are still very low, and are trading well into the cost curves where businesses are not making money, you're not seeing high cost supply come out of the market. So in in actual fact, what we want is we want to see failures in the space. So that will give us a sense that economics is now um, back at play in terms of businesses are not able to earn um, positive uh, returns in terms of EVA and uh, perhaps going under the water and the high cost supply comes out the market and then supply and demand adjust and prices start to rise. So we've seen none of that. And you know that would be one of the big factors that we still are, are watching and, and uh, waiting. But you know clearly um, independent of this is share prices are moving down all the time and are getting you know hammered. And you know at some point, um, I guess, you know, one one will be invited to reflect whether all of that bad news is indeed priced into those shares. Now, you know, if if there's no probability of the business going bankrupt, in other words, um, you know, if the business is not highly levered, then that's a very different prospect to to looking at a commodity business that doesn't have 
uh, debt on the balance sheet. You know, it's ungeared. They can cut their costs and you know that the business will be in business. Mm. So we actually worry that a lot of the businesses that are around might not actually be in business, um, you know, over the next couple of years. So hence, we've been very cautious, uh, protecting customer capital and investing in those businesses, like you pointed out earlier, where we can identify good solid businesses, good dividend yields um, with the ability to grow those cash flows into the future. Just lastly, uh, benchmarks, your balanced fund and your flexible fund as a benchmark of a uh, of inflation plus plus 4% for the balanced fund and inflation plus 5% for the flexible fund. Is that not a bit conservative? On the face of it, when you look at it, I mean, it may appear to be conservative. Um, I guess what we what we've targeted is we've we targeting to give customers the best real returns within the framework of those two mandates that we can generate, and I think if you look at the returns that those products have have compounded at over the last couple of years, you know in the in the sort of the twenty percent range, um, you can see that we're not aiming for just CPR plus four or plus five. So we aim to do the best job we can for our customers and our clients, and. You know, I think also one must be a bit humble and say that the returns that a lot of these products have generated over the last five years have come on the back of big tailwinds for risk assets. Equities have been very strong, you know, um, bonds, uh, certainly from an offshore context as well, been very strong. Property um, uh, uh, counters have also been strong. So it's been it's been easy to outperform or easier to outperform those benchmarks with some margin. You know, but but obviously uh, that brings performance fees into play. The lower your benchmark, uh, yes. the, the quicker you earn performance yes. fees. Um, and we've seen with the coronation changing of yes. their benchmarks, there has been some you know debate about the uh, when performance fees should kick in. Sure. Um, how, how do you view that? Sure. So I mean, I think first of all. What one's got to do is always make sure that uh, our interests are aligned with our customers' interests. So, you know, we have our own money invested in these uh, particular products. Um, from from a benchmark point of view, we think that those benchmarks, you know, while they might appear to be conservative, we think they are reasonable. And we think that the real asset test for these benchmarks will be the next five years when perhaps you don't have markets giving you such big tailwinds. And I would argue that a CPR plus five or 4% benchmark is going to be a lot more challenging in the next four or five years to achieve, you know, than opposed to what we've seen in the last five years. But I mean, from a from a benchmark point of view, I think at the end of the day, you've got to be fair, and we would expect that uh, we should be rewarded if we are um, if we perform well in line with our clients' uh, objectives. I mean, we don't have performance fees on these funds, so we're not charging um, big big performance fees at all. You know, we think we have very fair fees um, in these in these. Uh, portfolios, but the but TER ratios are between one and a half percent and one point six percent. Yes, mm. that yes. is uh, below the average. Yes, so so I mean, what I'm saying is, is that there are many products where you, um, from a from a performance fee point of view, I mean, we've seen you know TERs in excess of three. Um, what 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 we are aiming for is to look for clients who will be long term partners who buy into. Uh, our process and philosophy, which is prudent, it's disciplined, um, it's conservative, and you know where we think that over the long term we will consistently outperform these numbers. So, you know, we don't want to take excessive risk in the portfolio. In other words, uh, because we could earn a lot more money. 
So I guess from that perspective, we think you know customers' interests and our interests are, are also aligned. Um, but I think from a from a performance fee perspective and from a, a benchmark perspective, I think that you should only be rewarded as an asset manager if you outperform your benchmarks. So you know to the extent that if you choose the Allzy or the Swix or or these multi-asset class products, uh, you should have an appropriate benchmark. It should be reasonable. It should be fair. And you know, if you do charge performance fees, you should have to beat all of those before you um, before you get paid something extra. Mm. Uh, thank you, Ian. Ian Power is a portfolio manager at Truffle Asset Management.